Hi, I'm Jasmine Bayomi and this is the debrief from Al Jazeera English. Today we're going to the United States, to a place that never changes, at least not for the good of the people who live there. And that place is called Boonville. But before we start, I want to quickly tell you where to find our podcast and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play, you name it. So feel free to tell your friends. That would make us so happy. So if you were looking at a map, you would look sort of at the tip of the Appalachian uh, region in Kentucky. That's my colleague, Al Jazeera journalist Patrick Strickland. He'll be guiding us on this trip to the little town of Boonville. Population 87. It's a very mountainous area. Boonville is tucked between hills and mountains. It's the part of Kentucky that um, was very well known for coal production and coal mining. Who's a miner? Raise your hand. You, you don't look like a miner. A lot of miners. We're going to put the miners back to work. The miners go back to work. But after becoming president, Donald Trump managed to create wait for it, only 70 jobs in a newly opened coal mine in Pennsylvania. The grand opening of the Acosta coal mine signals a new chapter in America's long, proud coal mining tradition. Boonville's a pretty thoroughly Republican town in a very thoroughly Republican county. Yeah, and they do vote, yeah. But that wasn't really what I was looking at. I was trying to find the places where life doesn't change either way, where people feel forgotten either way. Uh, Sort of in the spirit of like people who are in some way not impacted by the elections, whether or not it's a Democrat or a Republican, no matter who wins, in some way their lives don't really change. But despite that, and despite its size, like I said, it's only 87 people, Boonville got pretty famous just before the 2016 presidential election. I mean, from every publication, from NBC to um, New York Times to the Wall Street Journal, sent somebody to the Appalachia region to explain why these people support Trump, right? Which is a really reductionist approach to the whole thing. Yeah, so people are really frustrated with these depictions of them in popular culture and in the mainstream media, often as uneducated, lazy, uh, and capable, and you know, folks who don't, who are kind of unaware and don't know what's best for them, themselves. So then, going into town, I guess you'd be really wary about coming across as just another reporter who wants to do poverty porn. But there's something else, right? Another thought that you have when you go to places like this. I think that in some ways I can relate to Boonville, and in some ways I can't. Um, I grew up Um, first in Florida and then later in Texas, um, in very working class um, and predominantly white uh, communities. Um, And I think that that experience, the experience of having uh, lived in a trailer park at one point, lived in government housing at another, that experience informed my approach to to Boonville. Um, I wouldn't say that you know, for instance, I felt the same way that they feel or, or something like that. But I would say that it did, um, you know, kind of give me some guiding principles 
and uh, maybe inform the way that I spoke to folks, the kind of questions I asked, and the way that I approached the story at large. Okay, so driving into town, what do you see? As you sort of are going down this hill towards Boonville, in the morning time there's inevitably, it seemed like every day, just an intense cloud of, uh, of mist in the morning, of fog. And you could imagine that there would be car accidents uh, because of it. When you get into the town itself, you'll pass a Dollar General. Dollar General is a sort of discount store in the United States. Then you go over a little bridge, and there's the town hall uh, right there in the middle. It's very small. I mean, that serves as sort of the nucleus of the town, the town hall. Um, around that, you have an old closed-down barbershop, an old closed-down cafe, there's a church, there's many churches in, in the town, and then there's like an, an office for veterans, and there's one cafe that's still open, it's called the Old Bus Stop Diner. Oh, I love stories, and I want to keep them alive, because the more you find The Old Bus Stop Diner sounds like something straight out of the movies, like Fargo or something. Stepping into a place like this is a bit awkward for a stranger. It's the kind of place where everybody knows everybody. You tell me when I want to talk. So the old bus stop diner is kind of the meeting place of everybody in town. So you can go in there at 7 a.m. and it's totally packed. I mean, there's a bunch of old men sitting around smoking cigarettes and just shooting the shit. Some of them are telling jokes. Some of them are just hanging out. Some of them are waiting to go to work. Some of them don't have work. It's a really, really interesting place. There's a lot of life in it. Well, have you read about Big John Aikman? Uh-uh. You read here to John Aikman, Big John? He's one of the worst men by far. And sort of at the center of life in the old bus stop diner is Lowell Morris. Lowell Morris is a 68-year-old guy who's sort of done everything. He was a volunteer deputy sheriff at one point, I think in the 70s. He worked as a guard at the local school at some point. Until today, he mows and does the landscaping at the local cemetery. Most people there consider him sort of the town's oral historian because he knows the background of everybody's families. He knows the whole history of the county. If somebody comes into the to the old bus stop diner, he could point at them and then say the last, you know, five generations of their family's history right away off the top of his head. Now, he was a rebel. He was, in the, the, he was against Bill Strong. He killed Bill. Yeah, well, I've he heard killed stories Cap- about He killed this. Captain Bill. Wow. And he also hung Han Kilburn up there yeah. at the courthouse. Yeah. John a- he grew up uh, there in Boonville with his grandparents from a young age. They were a very poor and very religious family, very conservative. So he sold timber and he paid Social Security, and he sold his tobacco and paid Social Security, and maybe had some cattle he sold, three or four head of cattle, paid Social Security, and I remember his check, his check and her check together, $64.60. That was what they drew a month. Combined. Combined. And we got by good on it, because before that we didn't have nothing. He didn't finish school. He had to start working for his, to help support his family. 
And then he spent most of his life there, never left Boonville, and he's just been taking care of two disabled sisters, and he lives in, in on the property that he inherited from his grandparents. Lowell is one of those guys who takes everybody under his wing. For example, right across the street from him lives a fellow named Rusty. And when Rusty was a kid, his family had some trouble, so Lowell just took him in and raised him. And there's another guy. People call him Mose. He's also under Lowell's care. No, he's got COPD. He just has to work slow, you know. He don't have good lungs. Smoke uh, heavy. I couldn't believe it when I come up here. They used to keep it mowed, just like that right there. Well, I've seen the pictures of his house. Mows. Yeah, terrible. Shameful. Oh, it's terrible. So terrible. Dishes up to the ceiling and and uh, that little boy sitting there. Yeah, at that table with the sores on him. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, they got that and put that on a picture on my book cover. On a book cover? Yeah. Uh-huh. They wrote a book. Wow. I don't know the name of it, but something kind of Appalachian. Poverty, whatever. So sometimes Lowell will give Moe some work. You know, pay him to help with the cemetery landscaping, for example. He also gave Moe a truck so he can drive around and not be stuck in that trailer. Actually, having a means of transportation is super important in Boonville. Because most of the people who have jobs don't work in town. Most people have to commute. So, um, you know, that could be a half hour, it could be more. Uh, folks who go to university have to drive. I think the closest university is about an hour, hour and a half away. For young people, it seems like there's not a lot to do. That's what I was told over and over again. Um, the cinema closed down many years ago. The drive-in movie theater closed down many years ago. Most of the restaurants and most of the grocery stores, most of the hardware stores, all of this stuff closed down years ago, for instance, when a, when a Walmart was opened up in a neighboring county. They couldn't compete. So life is immensely quiet. I mean, if you drive around Boonville at night, you're not going to see tons of folks out because there's not many places to go. In 2015, unemployment was around 10.5% in Owsley County. That's where Boonville is. That's nearly twice as much as the national average. In a year, people over there make roughly $19,000 per household, whereas the national median income is about $55,000 a year in the United States, which means people in the region may have jobs, but they're still poor. Before I went to Boonville, I read this article in The Guardian about a place called Beattyville, which is like 10 minutes away from Boonville. It's a town right next to it, and it's also one of the poorest white towns in, in the country. And it really went into a lot of detail about how folks there, particularly those who lost their jobs after the coal industry endured such a, such a thorough collapse, were grappling with drug problems, whether it be methamphetamines uh, or painkillers. Um, both were very prevalent there. And um, when I went to Boonville, I found the same there, uh, particularly methamphetamines. A lot of folks in rural communities across America have seen an influx of drugs like methamphetamines. One, because they're cheap, um, and they're often you know, referred to as the poor person's drug because they're affordable and easy to make. Um, practically anyone can make them. Right. 
there's this one instance during your visit, Patrick, where poverty and drugs go hand in hand to an extent that's a bit hard to imagine. And remember this figure. Over half of the children in Owsley County live under the government-designated poverty line. And then back here, we have food that we give to the senior citizens on the main back shelf back there. And this section here, and then, of course, that other section is snacks for the children and to go in their food bags. Cleta Turner is a local woman who runs an NGO called Owsley County Outreach. And what they do is they provide uh, backpacks full of food for poor students uh, to take home over the weekend. You know, the whole idea is that some of these kids are coming from homes that are so poor that their primary source of meals is the cafeteria at school. So when they go home for two days, they might not eat all weekend long. And so Cleta recalled this story about how meth very indirectly impacted her life in a very serious way. We first started this program, we got um, canvas backpacks, and we were putting the food in them. And they would have to bring the backpack back. We was trying to teach them responsibility. A lot of the, the bags would have rats where they'd been eating on them. And um, then I found out I was getting contaminated from meth from those canvas bags. And then all of a sudden, after some months, she said that she was feeling quite ill. And uh, she eventually found out that it had to do with meth residue basically being on the bags, coming back, and then getting on her skin. And I was just achy and headaches and just awful as shape ever was, you know, just... And uh, we couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And then um, I read an article... And, of course, I called Frankfurt, the environmental. And they said, oh, no, don't you touch those bags. You don't, no, no, no. If they're in the home, those bags are 100% contaminated, and you are getting it through your hands. So that's when I quit using anything other than things that they couldn't bring back. And a lot of the homes where they do meth and stuff like that, the drywall and stuff, you know, is contaminated. And those kids are living in that. If you're tempted to draw a conclusion right here, try to resist. Yeah, sure, we're talking to and about people with serious problems, but nobody chooses to live like this. The problems come from somewhere. You know, there's this theme, and it goes from the mayor to the folks who are just normal folks, you know. They felt totally left behind by both Democrats and Republicans. People in eastern Kentucky and across Appalachia have quite literally sacrificed their land and for the coal industry and for mining. And um, most of that money that was made, most of the profits, were not put back into those communities. So the land is, you know, literally scarred in some way with mountaintop removal and, you know. So um, they've sacrificed a lot. And their bodies as well. People that worked in the coal mines, you know, a lot of them are dealing with very serious health issues for the rest of their lives because of that. Don't make me cry. Um, If we don't save the children, what have we got? You would think America could do that. But America has forgotten about the children. 
everybody's into themselves. They're not thinking about the children. You know, little Johnny's sick, so what? Little Johnny's hungry? Well, that's his parents' problem. And so that's how the cycle goes, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. If you like this week's episode, please rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. This episode was produced and audio edited by Lorenzo Colentiniano. Patrick Strickland was a correspondent and our social videos and distribution are done by Mohsin Ali. Our executive producer, Yasser Khan, keeps it all together. And of course, I'm your host, Jasmine Bayomi. Thanks for listening. Auf Wiedersehen.